there was collective frustration by everyone. And I think that was a moment in Views history. I think the, the most controversial thing probably happened that, that in Views history where they were like, oh, this is a mistake we've made and we need to figure out how to be better. And I think I've seen a lot of progress from that point on. Yeah, if anything, it's made me want to use View more because I'm like, this is great. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Move fast and fix things. Resolve errors in minutes and deploy with confidence. Head to Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Request a demo. Get started today. It's loved by developers, trusted by enterprises, and most of all, we use it here at Changelog. Move fast and fix things with Rollbar. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. On next week's episode, I assemble a team of web RTC experts. Maybe you've heard of them. Suze Hinton, Farasabuka DJ, and Michael Rogers. And we do a deep dive on this practically ubiquitous yet still complicated API. It's an amazing episode. If you just can't wait, the video is on our YouTube channel. Otherwise, subscribe to the pod if you haven't and be notified when that one drops. Right now, we've got Framework Wars, we've got TIL, and shout outs. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hello, and welcome to another exciting JS Party. I'm your host this week, Nick, and I am joined by three fantastic panelists. First off, K-Ball. How's it going, K-Ball? Hello. It's good. Welcome, welcome. And also, Divya. Divya, welcome. Hello, hello. And finally, last but definitely not least, is Chris, or aka Boneskull. Boneskull, how's it going? Howdy. We have an exciting show lined up for you today. Uh, we are going to be talking first off about the framework wars and specifically what is new in view, what is coming down the pipeline, apparently soonish with view three and our resident view expert Divya is going to walk us through that. Divya, do you want to tell us some of the exciting things coming in view three? Yeah, definitely. So we've talked a lot, I think in previous episodes, cable and I have gabbed on and on about view three <laughs> and We've speculated many times as to when V3 will appear and come to the fore without knowing exactly when that date is. But I think it was the beginning of this month. So July 1st, Avenue opened an issue in the RFC's uh, repo for View with the status update, which is something that we've been waiting for for a really long time. Because I think View 3 was slated to be released at the end of 2019. And then they were like beginning 2020. I think eventually it was around Q2. So we are in sort of Q2. Are we Q2? Yeah. And so there's finally an actual status update. It's not super clear as to the exact date that the release will happen, but there is like a long thread that points to the targets that they have at the moment, which is actually the closest that they've ever gone to telling you a timeline. And so from that particular doc, which we'll copy in the, in the notes, it says that, IE 11 compatibility will be by July 2020. I would say end of July because we're currently at the beginning of July. We haven't heard anything yet. 
So um, July 2020, I think, is IE11 compatibility as well as the migration guide, which I think is going to be really important for people to migrate their applications. But in terms of using Vue 3, I believe it's fairly production ready at the moment. And by production ready, I mean it's ready if you don't care about IE11. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not production ready. But it is ready to be used. I think they've compartmentalized various parts of Vue 3. So you can use the composition API. You can use Vue Router in the Vue 3 form and so on. And so you can pick and choose and use various parts of Vue 3 and updated the updated release without having to wait for a lot of these pieces if you don't care about that. Very cool. So that's actually really exciting. I think the final release date when they're like, everything will be cut and dried done is August. According to this document, it says early August is when final release will happen, when you can sort of say it's actually fully ready. But yeah, actually, that's super soon. So that's like, you know, in a month or two, we'll have Vue 3 finally here. That's fingers crossed that this deadline does not <laughs> extend further. But I would say that's the most exciting thing, I think. And alongside that way, I think you might have seen, but Avenue has also been talking a lot about various experiments he's been doing with Vue. So Vite is, I think we've talked about it in a previous episode, was something that he just released one day, which I assume was just like, while working on Vue 3, decided to do something else. He was dogfooding. Dogfooding, essentially, Vue 3 and modern experimental standards like ESM and so on. I think he uses Snowpack. Hmm. So that that's also a really cool thing that came out of the overall like development and dogfooding of Vue 3. So there's so much that's happening in that space. I think in the next two months, you'll see a lot of like exciting developments and probably a bunch of blog posts and comments and tweets. Very cool. Yeah, August is... Uh... Depending on how you view time right now, it's an eternity away or it's tomorrow. It's Exactly. <laughs> or both. <laughs> Our time is so bizarre right now. Well, and thinking about it, I know Evan Yu has at least one kid. And I don't know how many other, the other folks working on the View 3 release also have kids. But I feel like we can give them a little slack on shipping late, at least given sure. mine and every other parent's experience over the last few months. Shipping anything right now really feels like an accomplishment. So, yeah. Whew, yeah. <laughs> uh, but just to kind of touch a little bit on the history of Vue 3, uh, because we've definitely talked about it before. And surprise, surprise, one of the things that I specifically remember about it is that it's being rewritten in TypeScript. I, Shocker. I don't know why that part would stick in my head, but it did. And uh, also, didn't it start off as kind of a private repo that just the core team was kind of working on? in secret for a while to kind of get their ideas flushed out. And then obviously it's been opened up since then. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that was pretty interesting is the development process for Vue 3 happened right about at the same time as the Vue team also started really using an RFC process, request for comments process. So they kept the core development experiments early in Vue 3 as a private repo, but they were broadcasting a lot of the proposals for features in public and working out through those in public, which to me was a really interesting balance of let's not have the experience where we have something super raw and unready and we get 20 million issues and pull requests from people who don't understand what we're doing, but let's also have this process be open so folks can actually get their opinions in and it's not just happening in secret. Yeah. I imagine that that's where the prologue version of you died. <laughs> Potentially. Oh, Nick, I've missed you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I really like the RFC process because I think it was also a really good way for the community to feel heard because for the longest time there was this uh, concept that view had like Avenue is the, the BDFL of view and he held the reins and there was always speculation as to what would happen if a boss hit Evan or a dinosaur ate him or something. And he no longer could be part of the project. And so the RFC was also in line with making sure that the community had, there was transparency. So people knew what was being worked on. And I think it was also the beginning of the core team and various members of the core team taking more responsibility for core, because a lot of them were part of, they owned various parts of the ecosystem, like the router and the UX and so on. But I think core was a lot of it, Evan's responsibility. And so I think with the release of an RFC process and, more transparency, the uh, various members of the core team started being more involved with core. And I think Evan wanted that as well. And he's talked about wanting that and making sure that everyone is part of that so that he could slowly, you know, cede responsibility to people. And I think that's really cool because it also shows the community aspect of Vue. And we've talked about this before that the success of a framework has to do with the people who use it as well. And I think sometimes people forget that. Because they're like, my framework uses X technology and it's awesome. And it doesn't matter who uses it. It's just like this technology speaks for itself and people will use it because of how great it is. But I think that is a misnomer. And Vue has shown through its actions and through all these processes that they have in place that they care about the people who use it a lot and they actually listen. So the RFC process is not just like a shell where they're like, oh, let's pretend we listen to people and then close the issue and never listen to them. But I've actually seen like Evan taking a lot of the RFCs into consideration and actually changing APIs as a result. So that's actually really great to see that. Yeah, there was a pretty dramatic shift in what became the Composition API shook out. The Composition API started out as the functional API proposal, which is the Hooks-inspired change to view that mm-hmm. I'm probably the most excited of anything in Vue 3 about that and some of the stuff that that enables. But the first version of that got a lot of blowback and it was super impressive to me to watch that process play out. And Mm -hmm. I mean, that's challenging community management. How do you nudge people towards change while also accepting legitimate criticisms and using that to make the final outcome better? But I think Evan and the whole team there did a great job. Yeah, it's always hard because I think everyone's a critic, right? And not a lot of people are doing the work and everyone's just quick to criticize. And so it's also easy to get really defensive. And I've seen frameworks do that where the moment someone raises an issue, they get automatically defensive and they double down on a decision they've made. And within Vue, there was sort of this like criticism that came up in the beginning because with the functional API in particular, that was actually really controversial because when it was released, they talked about, and this was, I think, April or May of last year when they released the functional API RFC and it alluded to the possibility of the functional API being a new syntax and not being backward compatible. So Vue 3 would just move away from current Vue 2 syntax and move into this territory and like not actually support Vue 2 at all. There was collective frustration (laughs) by everyone. And I think that was a moment in Vue's history. I think the, the most controversial thing probably <laughs> happened that, that in Vue's history where they were like, oh, this is a mistake we've made and we need to figure out how to be better. And I think I've seen a lot of progress from that point on. Yeah, if anything, it's made me want to use Vue more because I'm like, this is great. Well, then contrast it to the Angular debacle. 
of several years back. Oh, yeah. That's what having the community engagement in the RFC process gets you, is you see how big of a debacle it's going to be before it's written in code and released, and you're able to head that off at the pass. You're talking about like Angular 2 slash 4, that, that whole area? Yeah, so Angular 1 to Angular 2, there was no migration path. There was no anything. It's still a confusion to this day. I mean, it reminds me of the Python 2.3 debacle mm-hmm. as well, right? Yeah. Like, if you don't think about how you're going to migrate people off of these things or how you're going to maintain backwards compatibility, one or the other, you got to pick one, then you end up in this bifurcated world where you're supporting both and it's a nightmare. Yeah, I think React does the same thing as well. They have quite a transparent RFC process. I don't know the internals of the decision-making process as well because they're a bit unique because a company is tied to the framework. It's not completely community-driven, but I do see at least the intention is there with the RFC process. But of course, slightly different because they do have company goals to to meet as well there. So that's awesome hearing that they're doing community management really well. That's something that is very easy to mess up and very hard to get right. And it seems like the RFC process is a really good way to not just take that community feedback, but also, as you've pointed out, they are learning from that and integrating community feedback into creating a view that everyone wants to use, which is really great. So on that, what are some of the big changes between view two and view three? Um, Is there anything majorly drastic? Well, as a user, you might be excited to hear, you know, drops in average size from, what is it, 20 or 30 kilobytes minified to 10-ish, drops in CPU usage. I heard an estimate that Evan put out of it cuts it by a factor of 10, so you're 10x less CPU usage in normal use. And the probably the most exciting thing to me as somebody who loves to just like geek out on stuff is that they're exposing the reactivity API through this composition API so that you can not just use it within view blessed constructs, but really build structures around it, build your own compositions based on reactivity. And I think honestly, the web world and especially the front end world is moving to reactivity based approaches and mental models and thinking across the board. And I'm super excited to see that being exposed as a raw primitive and rather than having it just something that magically happens as a part of the framework. Yeah, I think that one's a big one in terms of user land changes because a lot of it is performance changes and the way they do tree shaking has changed, the bundle size has changed. I think the the biggest differences in terms of what users will notice from using or writing view is like first class type support. And then also, as Cable said, the composition API is a really big one because that's actually still divisive in the community, <laughs> even though there was an RFC process and it was heavily talked about online, on Twitter, on GitHub, in various other places. You still hear people getting really like upset about it or really excited about it. This, it's very divisive because of how different it is with using Vue 2 currently. And that's mainly because it, as Cable mentioned, it's this like encapsulating the reactivity system of Vue. So you could just use like functions rather than Vue components. And so the Vue or the components are basically moved out or isolated from the functionality, which makes reusability a bit easier. To some people, it's a bit more complicated. I would argue it's easier um, but I've drank the Kool-Aid, so I, I'm all for that. But it's just really interesting. And I think it'll be 
neat to see what kind of patterns emerge from this. Because from my understanding with the composition API, there isn't really like a proper pattern as to how to write it. So for example, the way I've been using the composition API is I create a functions folder in my source folder, and then I write the functions. <laughs> and, and so it's very different because with regular patterns in view, you would, if you have components, it's in a components folder, and there's a sort of a tried and true pattern for how you would use them across an application. And I think with the composition API, they've yet to emerge patterns because people it's not widely adopted enough for that so it'll be interesting to see what kinds of things emerge yeah i feel like the hooks ecosystem around react took a solid six to nine months to really develop into good patterns libraries established best practices and all of that and i expect we'll see a similar thing once view three actually ships yeah so are those composition functions do they kind of parallel Hooks? I don't actually know much about Vue. They are hooks inspired, but not hooks exactly equivalent. Sure. I honestly, my impression of them is they feel more naturally continuous from the way that Vue felt before, whereas hooks was a big mental shift in how React functioned. But that's a personal opinion. I no, there are folks who disagree and say, no, this is too big of a change. This is following on and it's really complicated. Very cool. Well, yeah, that looks like something that's going to be very exciting to play around with in just a few short years or tomorrow, depending on how you're looking at it. So we'll look forward to talking more about V3 as it comes out. animals here's some news that you may not have heard yet gatsby now has a partnership program if you are building gatsby sites for clients or you're not yet but you wish you were you can now grow that with confidence by getting support and resources directly from the gatsby team become a gatsby certified partner today to accelerate your growth alongside their amazing ecosystem get exclusive access to gatsby's product roadmap beta test new features access training materials and connect with the gatsby team there's a whole bundle of partnership benefits. The sky's the limit. So check out Gatsby's partnership program using the link in the show notes or point your browser to gatsbyjs.com slash changelog. Once again, there's a link in your show notes or gatsbyjs.com slash changelog. Now in this segment, we're going to talk about things that we've learned. I won't say today I've learned because maybe I didn't learn that much by lunchtime today, but recently I have learned some cool things and I'm sure the other panelists have as well. So let's share some cool things that we've learned uh, recently. And to start us off, K-Ball, do you want to start? Sure. So... I have been doing a lot of work in React recently, contrast to our view episode early, and learning about different pieces and things of it. And I ran into a problem that I wasn't sure how to solve and ended up learning something about contexts and how contexts work. So for those who aren't super familiar, contexts are a way to avoid the prop drilling problem where you have some data that is shared 
through many, many layers of components. And so you can set up a context provider, which essentially says, here's some data and possibly some functions, but here's some data that I'm going to make available. And then any one of the children below that context can access that data. And I had a situation where I was providing some functions and I wanted them to have different defaults at different layers of the hierarchy. So I, for example, wanted a report to be able to insert additional context to provide a set of defaults for those functions. And I was trying to figure out how do I do it? Do I pull that context and modify it or things like that? And what I learned is contexts are shadowable. They have a particular key for the provider that it is that you're gonna do it. And you can load that context in one location and then provide a shadow of it that might be a changed version or a completely different implementation, but that is tied into that same context provider. And everything that's a child of you will get that new version. So I was able to have, in this case, it was a translation service and I had a translation service with different defaults that I was just, I would take the original context, I would get any information that it had, I would add additional information and create a new version of the translation service and provide it to my children. And so that's what I learned is how do you combine and override context? You do it by taking advantage of this shadowing approach. That is awesome. Maybe I'm not following along fully, but does it make it easier, harder to test with that? Like being able to set those or does it not really change that? Good question. So I think it depends a little bit on what layers you're testing in. Okay. Well, actually, anytime you have context, what it means is that the component that you're testing is dependent not only on the props that are being passed in, but the context that is being provided. And so that's something that you have to take into account in your testing. And in this case, now you have two different ways that that context being provided could be set up. So potentially you would have to take that into account in your testing. But I think you know, it's still reasonably well decoupled, right? It's still like you have to test each of these providers that you're creating, and then you have to test that the underlying components can deal with the types of things that are being provided. But the API was still consistent, so that the component testing in this case didn't have to change. You called the same functions, you called them in the same way, and in fact, that's probably pretty important as a principle. You'd need to make the context that you're providing provide exactly the same API that it had previously. So component testing didn't change, and it was just essentially testing two different forms of the context provider. Thanks. All right. Divya, do you want to go next? Yeah, I can go next. Mine is not JavaScript because I haven't been writing as much JavaScript. Well, I have been. I've been writing Vue, but I know a lot about Vue that it's it's hard to be today I learned. I'll talk about Rust because that's something I've been writing, <laughs> um, even though this is JS Party. Rust Party. Rust Party. So I've been writing a lot of Rust at work, and it's been a very steep hill, which is not contrary to popular belief. I think people know that already. And one of the things that I had to learn is this concept of references and copy traits. And essentially this idea of like when you're using a particular thing, like for instance, if you have a like a parameter or a variable elsewhere and you want to use that particular variable, within Rust, essentially there's a concept called lifetimes. So if a thing is used here and then you want to use it again later, Rust essentially kills it or removes it from memory because it's sort of trying to be as memory safe as possible. 
And I might be wrong in explaining this completely, which shows that this is very confusing for me myself as I understand this. But um, you have to essentially get around it using lifetimes. And I don't understand lifetimes for the life of me. And so what I've been doing instead is sort of trying to understand how references work by cheating, by creating a variable. <laughs> so it's no longer a reference. It's just like a completely new thing. So it's been interesting just like sort of playing around with the various ways of how memory is managed within Rust, because I think in JavaScript, we don't think about that at all. What is that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just automatically garbage collected for you and everything is done. And so you don't think about it. But when you think in a systems language like Rust, where memory and safety is really important, you have to start thinking about how exactly things are being used. Um how references were like what can be copied or cloned if you wanted to use the thing elsewhere in your code and so on. So yeah, this is like a today I'm continuing to learn rather than <laughs> I learned. So are you using the clone method and, and stuff to yeah. 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 That's also the interesting thing. I didn't realize, and maybe this is very obvious. I didn't realize that strings aren't automatically copyable. Like you can't just copy a string. You have to clone it. Which string? Which? Good question. <laughs> the string from, like if you do, so not a reference string, like an actual string. Capital S this, string. Capital S string. Right. So if you do capital S string, colon, colon, from, whatever the string is, that's what I mean. Mm that string. That is not copyable. It doesn't have a copy trait, which is another thing that you have to learn in Rust. What is a trait? And so just understanding how exactly to use things that seem really easy to use within Rust. So that's been fun. It's been a fun rabbit hole to go down as I implement a single API endpoint. <laughs> it takes way longer than like doing it in Node or something, but uh, it's a very steep learning curve. It's very difficult to learn, but when you do figure it out, it's very satisfying. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every time, like, it actually compiles, and right, it, it feels awesome because you beat the borrow checker and yeah. <laughs> you win Rust because you actually got it to compile. That sounds about the opposite of JavaScript, where you figure it out, you figure out how it works, and then you just sit there asking yourself, why? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that once you beat the borrow checker, you're pretty confident it's actually going to work, which is kind of the opposite of JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> fair. That is fair. Although there is some kinks with like JavaScript with TypeScript because the compiler will yell at you for it. Like lately, I've, I've been frustrated with TypeScript because I was using the Monaco editor in one of my components and I didn't have the types for it. And so I just used any and then TypeScript yelled at me. <laughs> They were like, do not use the any. And even if I tried to turn it, I, I ended up turning it off in my TS config, but I felt really bad because it felt like I wasn't really using TypeScript. I was cheating my way around it. <laughs> so after fighting with Rust, when you come back to TypeScript, is it like, oh, you're the like gentle abuser? Honestly, yes. Because the thing with learning Rust is it's so difficult. You don't know what you're doing. And then you come to TypeScript and you're like, oh, okay, this is easy. Like whatever. Because you can also like cheat your way around the config. Versus in Rust, there's no cheating. You can't cheat. <laughs> <laughs> and in JavaScript, you can be like, just poke at it or like cover it up with the, you know, and forget that it's there. Type ignore. Type yeah. ignore, yeah. 
Well, I will set aside this strongly worded email that I'm writing to you now, Divya, about me in TypeScript. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I'll I'll tell you about something that I learned recently. And um, I I was working on some code, uh, specifically some tests in TypeScript for a server-side API. And I was using Apollo Client, uh, which is a way to make GraphQL calls, basically. But... I wanted to mock that out in my tests because I don't want to actually make GraphQL calls in these specific tests that I was doing. And I'm sure there's a way to do it, but I was kind of going really fast and just using the just.mock feature where I can give it, you know, Apollo slash client and then provide it with a factory function telling it what to actually return when I use anything inside of there, specifically the Apollo client constructor. And I swear every time I do this with just mocking, I have to just kind of throw code at the wall and figure out what actually works because I can never remember exactly how to mock like a constructor to have it return like the methods that I want to have mocked so I can check those and make sure that they're called and and such. So I spend a lot of time doing that. But anyway, I got it working. And the way that I got it working was by in that factory function saying that anytime you am requesting Apollo client, here's a function to call. And that function returns an object that has my mocks on it. And so it was just using specifically the function keyword. I couldn't use arrow functions because you can't instantiate arrow functions. You can't call them with new. So I spent a little bit of time remembering that or being kindly reminded of that by by the tool and then got it working and go to commit everything. And we have a pre-commit hook that runs and will run ESLint dash dash fix to fix any ESLint problems. And it decided that it didn't like my use of function, the function keyword in there. So it rewrote that to be not an arrow function, but the third function syntax, which is the shorthand when you have a function on an object where it's just the name, open parenthesis, close parenthesis, and then open curly bracket, close curly bracket, and your function's in there. So it's just removing the, the function keyword, or so it would seem. But that one you also cannot instantiate as new. And I think that what was happening was because I wasn't actually using the this keyword in there, it ESLint just assumed that it could rewrite that to be the shorthand syntax and everything would be okay. Pushed it up. And of course, CI caught that all of my tests failed because it couldn't actually instantiate any of those. Uh, so I got very mad at ESLint for, for a couple of days. But then I, I ended up rewriting that to, instead of using an actual function, just use an anonymous class and have that as the the value that I return for Apollo client instead. But the thing I learned is there are several ways to uh, write functions in JavaScript. And of course we know that the big differences in the different syntaxes is how they handle the context or the this keyword in there. But also the newer ones can't be instantiated with new. And so that is uh, something that I begrudgingly learned this week. Is there a use case for calling new on a method of some classes prototype? Hmm. I couldn't, (laughs) I don't think so. Not that I can think of. Yeah. This is like very weird code, right? Because it's, I'm trying to mock out something in a test. So it's not like production level code that would actually be running anywhere except for in, in tests. And it's kind of a, a hack from the beginning. That's how I feel whenever I'm writing using just.mock. So 
Bones Call, what have you learned recently? So the thing that I wanted to say that I thought was neat, and this actually is a thing that Nick taught me via a tweet on Twitter.com. And um, I'm not sure how to speak the, the code here, but essentially it's something in your Git config. So a Git config is kind of like... I don't know, it's kind of like an any file, right? It's kind of sort of Toml-like, right? And so you have a header, which is in the um, square brackets, and that's include. And with the include thing, you can give it paths to other git config files, essentially. And so you can have your root git config in your home dir, and then in this include section, you can go and, and pull in other files, right? And so if you are like me and like Nick, apparently you have a dot .files, your dot .files are all in Git. And you want, or the idea is probably to be able to share them across different machines and use them in different contexts. And there's certain things that you don't want to commit to VCS, like, I don't know, secrets, for Nick, it was email addresses. And so what you can do is you can tell Git, hey, include this other Git config file. And Git is cool about it, and it will not complain, apparently, if that file doesn't exist. And so if you're on, say, uh, your work computer, you can have your dot .files there, and you can say, hey, include this other work-specific Git config. Right. And in that git config, you can define, what is it, like a user, an email address, uh, you know, a, a G key, whatever you want to add in there. And so, yeah, I thought that was neat. Also, I think there's, oh, right. So if you have a repo, say you're doing this on one machine and you have a working copy and that's for your work, right? How do you say, okay, everything in here, is it like a per directory basis? Or can you have like a parent directory and say, okay, everything under this parent directory needs to use this username. Is that what you do? Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, so you mentioned there's that include, mm -hmm. the ability to include another file. There's also a variation of that called include if. Okay. And in there, you can give it a couple of different options, but one of them is include if, git dir, and you give it a partial path to where that Git directory might exist. And if whatever Git directory you're in matches that partial path in any way. So like for mine, I have like a work directory where all of the repos I've cloned are in that work directory and it has, you know, a specific name. So I can just say include if Git dir is the path to that work directory. And then anything in there will source that other Git config so that you can do other overrides in there that are very specific to like your work, for example. Right. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And if you didn't care about like putting your, your username and email in VCS, I mean, it seems like you could just use include if in your main git config too, if you didn't want this like extra file that wasn't under version control. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Where did you learn that, Nick? <laughs> Spelunking through the, the git docs on, on the internet. Yeah, there's gold in there. Yes. There are cool things that Git does uh, in config files that you probably have no idea about, and I find new things all the time. Yeah. The really cool part of that is that if those files don't exist, Git doesn't complain at you. It just mm -hmm. ignores them quietly, which is what it should do. Well, that's what I learned.
This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling like the Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. In this segment, we're going to give some shout outs or talk about stories of the week, uh, very interesting things that are happening recently. Uh, so a little bit different from today, I learned these are interesting things that we plan to learn or that have happened in the community, in the news, uh, or just shout outs to some really cool people or projects that we've seen. So starting us off, Chris, do you want to go first? Yes, I do. Um, so I wanted to shout out to one of the maintainers of Mocha. And he has been a maintainer for, I don't know, several years now, Peter Mueller. He is Munter, M-U-N-T-E-R, on GitHub. And so what Peter did recently was he basically tore out our build tool chain. So our build tool chain has been Browserify for a very long time. And so Mocha kind of has these two areas of the code base. They're not split out as well as they should be, but... Um, we have one area which runs in Node, and it only runs in Node. And in there, since we support Node 10 or newer, we can use all the cool syntax. And then we have this other area, which is, okay, this code gets shipped to a browser. So in here, we have to use essentially code that runs in IE 11. And we have uh, historically not run any transpilers or anything. Anyway, this is just terrible, and it's, like, not fun um, because we have an ESLint file that has essentially this big list of files that you can use modern syntax on and everything else you can't. And so, you know, you, you don't necessarily know, as I said, it's not well divided or organized, but you don't necessarily know from any given file whether or not you can use, I don't know, the class keyword, right? So uh, what he did is he, he pulled out Browserify and he mo moved us over to Rollup and, uh, you know, there's uh, Babel and all sorts of other, well, not all sorts of other things, but th those are the main ones, right? So we can now use these modern syntax across the entire Mocha code base, which is a relief, really. It's, it's painful not to be able to use those things. And, and so I just wanted to thank you, Peter, for your effort and getting that landed. It is awesome. And thanks. Cool. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Divya, you want to go next? Yeah. So my shout outs are, are thematic. So I've been, <laughs> I've been, as I mentioned, writing a lot of TypeScript in Rust. And what has been really useful is using the, the playgrounds for, for either. So TypeScript has the, I think it's called play. Yeah, it's a playground, TypeScript playground. And then Rust has a very similar one as well, which allows you to just like write some code and then compile it 
and it gives you like really good error messaging as well as like examples. I don't think the Rust one gives you examples, but the TypeScript one does. So if I don't know how to write something, let's say, there's a chance that the examples will show, like for instance, if I don't know how to write async await in TypeScript, there is an example for it that I can automatically load into the playground. And that has been phenomenal for me because I don't have to look at the documentation because I, I actually really dislike TypeScript docs. I think they're very difficult to read. And I think in general, whenever people document using the TypeScript docs, it's very, like, it gives me a sense of what types something takes, but not how to use the thing, which is really annoying. And so I think the playground has been really useful in terms of ramping up really quickly when I need to get a question answered so I don't have to read the docs. I can just like automatically load an example or try to figure out how to type it and then get TypeScript to yell at me within the playground itself. So like one, I don't um, have to do that within my project itself. I can just do this in this independent playground. And same for Rust. I can just do write some Rust code in an independent playground without having to set up a configuration environment or like run my entire Rust project to see if one thing worked. And so honestly, there's a huge shout out to people who write playgrounds. I believe the Rust one is written by the Integer32 team. There's probably someone specifically there that I'm forgetting, but that is phenomenal and I think really useful for my learning with that. I, I have no idea who wrote the TypeScript playground, but it's great. And I actually like the current version of the playground, not the future version. I think there's a V3 of it. I really dislike the V3. <laughs> it's very unclear and confusing. And I find the V2 one, which is the current version one, way clearer personally. But regardless, people who write playgrounds are great because it's a really great way to get people to like get comfortable with it. I think similar on that vein is like when SAS was first introduced, there's like a try SAS. So you can write like SAS functions and variables and then get that to compile the CSS. So it's a really quick way of like just prototyping without having to like read docs. So yeah, that's my shout out. That's really cool. Yeah, I will agree with you on that. I've been mostly using the V2 playground. Uh, but the one thing that I really do like in V3, and it's an experimental feature, is uh, it will show you the AST of whatever you type in there. Oh, right. That's true. Yeah, that is nice. But yeah, definitely some cool work. I, I also love that it's just so shareable with with these playgrounds. Like you can type some code and then yes, that's share it. true. So, yes, actually, I forgot that. That's a very nice feature too because then I can easily just be like, I'm struggling with this, and then someone can send me a TypeScript playground and show me how to write the thing. So nice. Yes. Cool. I will go next. And the cool thing that I wanted to shout out is uh, something that uh, Zach Leatherman has been working on, and it's called Speedlify. Um, and it's a, a pretty cool way to continuously measure performance, uh, specifically of static sites. And it's got a full dashboard that is running on Netlify that shows the performance over time of different static sites using 11D or Nuxt or Next or other tools like that. And it'll, it'll show you every time it runs and how those have changed and it has a graph that shows exactly what's changed. It'll give their Lighthouse scores. And you can break down, I believe you can break down into specific pages to see how those are performing, uh, which is really cool. So yeah, I'll throw a, a link to that in the show notes. And Cable, uh, what do you got? Yeah, so I have two different things that I want to shout out. They're both pretty small, um, or stories that I saw that I thought were neat. The first one is there was a new release of Chrome DevTools that adds 
uh, support for editing or better support for editing styles created with the CSS object model APIs, which essentially means you know, any sort of CSS and JS framework that you're using, many of them are now using those object model and they were previously uneditable in dev tools, which meant that one of the key tooling that you had for visibility into and changing of your styles was not available in a CSS and JS world. And I'm still not a huge fan of CSS and JS for many use cases, but it is a critical tool for some use cases, particularly large teams and, and distributed teams, large products. And it's also something that at least a lot of the React world is moving towards. So I think we've got to have good support for it. And I just love to see that uh, tooling support coming along for it. I am grudgingly using styled components in my stuff at work right now <laughs> and even mostly getting used to it, but still not a fan. Anyway, uh, the other thing I want to shout out is in one of the breaks after we talked about Vue and all this stuff looking, I went and clicked in on a Vue newsletter on the Vue.js news and I saw some stuff, uh, PR posted in the RFCs by Evan Yu about single file component improvements. And the thing I want to shout out about it that I think is really cool is it's doing essentially a set of compile time sugar and changes for cleaning up how you do things inspired by Svelte. And nice. longtime listeners will know that I, I'm a big proponent of moving more and more things in our front end ecosystem to compile time and trying to pre-compile them. That's to, in my mind, what Jamstack is all about. That's mm -hmm. what enables edge community computing. It's a huge thing. And I love to see this kind of cross-pollination of innovation in that space happening between frameworks, because that's something that I think Svelte has really pushed the bar on and made some dramatic improvements. And I, I'm excited to see where it goes. And as it goes into other frameworks, becomes Vueified for Vue. Maybe React will pick up some interesting tips and how that innovation continues to roll. Nice. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, that is what we have for the party this week. Thank you so much to our panelists, uh, K-Ball, Divya, and Chris. And we will see you next week. Party on. I immediately regretted saying party on. <laughs> 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 you can comment on this and every episode on changelog.com there's a link in your show notes for easy click-ins or just set up changelog.com in your browser du jour and let your voice be heard oh and did you know we have an awesome weekly newsletter over 15,000 devs just like yourself hit the easy button on keeping up with what's fresh and new in the software world we include the hottest repos, the best articles, and the biggest news with just enough commentary to add context and nerdy jokes, but not so much that you're overwhelmed. Big thanks to Nick Nisi for emceeing this episode, to K-Ball, Divya, and Chris for joining in on the fun, to Breakmaster Cylinder for all the awesome beats, and to our longtime sponsors, thank you Rollbar, Linode, and Fastly. Last but not least, thank you for listening. We truly appreciate it. That's all for now. WebRTC next week. Party on, Garth.